Because some prostitutes told him that the car could be found in a garage owned by a former DC officer named Green. It was a huge deal. It was headline news. I don't want a single word written about that case. Do you understand? There's a possibility it could be solved one day. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is Episode 5. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on The Car Barn Murders. Lead after lead wound up in dead ends, and the detectives were working 20-hour days trying to find the killers of James Mitchell and Emery Smith. Weeks went by with nothing to show for it, except for the forensic analysis of the shell casings and bullets recovered from the ticket office and from the victims. They were looking for a beat-up 1903 Colt .32 caliber semi-automatic used in the murders, as well as a stolen green Buick and anyone who could provide solid information. Nobody was coming forward, and it seemed like they were running out of options until a confidential informant gave them a tip. The informant told detectives Volton and Brass that two men, Lawrence Pettit and George Bruffy, were planning a robbery of the main office car barn in Georgetown a few weeks before the car barn case. The informant initially declined the offer to join them, thinking that a broad daylight robbery sounded like a suicide mission. Brass and Volton convinced the informant to team up and get as much intel as he could from Pettit and Bruffy to see if either one of them mentioned the car barn case. At a lunchroom downtown, the informant met with Pettit and Bruffy and asked if a friend of his from Baltimore could get in on the job. They agreed. The informant said he'd go along with them on the main office robbery, but he didn't want to be part of a senseless murder like the Chevy Chase job. Lawrence Pettit looked at the informant and said, that was all a mistake, forget it. George Bruffy kicked Pettit under the table and said, shut up, you talk too much. The informant brought that information back to Volton and Brass who put Pettit and Bruffy at the top of their suspect list and went full speed ahead. The following day, Officer Jerry Hobbs, a rookie cop from Montgomery County, was brought into the precinct to go undercover as the informant's buddy from Baltimore. Officer Hobbs had less than a year on the job, so his face wouldn't be familiar to anyone on the street. He was smart and had good instincts so Volton and Brass put their trust in him. They all had a talk, 
and the informant said that Officer Hobbs would work out just fine with a little coaching. Later that day, Hobbs and the informant met with Pettit and Bruffy to make introductions and work on plans for the heist. Volton and Brass went to Georgetown, to the top floor of Mr. Stevens, the superintendent of transportation for the Capital Transit Company. They told Mr. Stevens what was going on behind the scenes and asked him if the information that Pettit and Bruffy had about the armored truck, the times and locations were accurate. Mr. Stevens said they knew the setup perfectly. While they were talking, Detective Volton looked out of the window to M Street below and he saw Officer Hobbs get out of a car. Three men approached him from all sides. Alarm bells went off. Had Hobbs already been made as a plant? Before Volton and Brass could run downstairs, another Metropolitan Police officer approached the car and started to talk to all of them. One of the men was Lawrence Pettit. That officer was questioned later on, and he said that he was just checking the car registration, which was legitimate. Officer Hobbs' cover wasn't blown after all. The following day, everyone met up, and the informant and Hobbs told them that Pettit, Bruffy, and one other man were still hell-bent on the main office holdup. For the next 11 days, Volton and Brass shadowed the group and found out the third man's name, Richard Boyle. Officer Hobbs reported back every night, and on that twelfth day, he said their plans had changed. Now they planned to rob the ticket office at 4th and T Street overnight, then the main office the following morning. With that information from Hobbs, Detective Volton went to Captain Thompson of the D.C. Police and told him everything that Hobbs had found out. Captain Thompson ordered Volton and Brass to arrest everyone immediately. He didn't want to wait any longer and possibly have another murder on his hands. Officer Hobbs advised them where the final meeting was going to take place. Volton and Brass made their surprise visit and everyone was taken into custody. Pettit and Bruffy were questioned, and they were told that Officer Hobbs had been working undercover all along. They knew they were busted fair and square on the robbery conspiracy, and they copped to it. When Volton asked about the Carbarn case, both of them clammed up and demanded a lawyer. Not to be deterred, Volton took Pettit and Bruffy's mugshots in a photo spread to the Chevy Chase ticket office to see if anyone recognized them. He spoke with Wilmer Moore, the evening clerk. Moore said that about three months before the Chevy Chase murders, he saw a white man sitting on a bench outside the office at around 1.30 in the morning. He described the man as around 35, 5 foot 8, 150 pounds. At around 2.15 that morning, a sedan drove by going southbound on Connecticut Avenue. When it got in front of the office, it slowed to a crawl, and Moore said it appeared as if the man on the bench waved it on to keep going. He said the man stayed on that bench all night long and he last saw him there at around 6 o'clock in the morning. When Wilmer Moore looked at the photo spread, he told Detective Volton that he couldn't be positive, but George Bruffy did resemble the man on that bench. Volton pressed for a positive identification, but Moore said he wasn't sure. It had been so long ago. 
No other witnesses came forward about Pettit, Bruffy, or Boyle being at the office or being involved in the murders. With no solid witnesses or forensics to put any of them there, that part of the case stalled once again. The grand jury convened, and with Officer Hobbs' testimony, Lawrence Pettit, George Bruffy, and Richard Boyle were all indicted for conspiracy to commit armed robbery. It was Valentine's Day. More leads in the form of official memorandums were left in a stack on Volton's desk. One of them, regarding a suspicious car, took Brass and Volton to some of the seedier establishments downtown that were frequented by the underworld. Detective Brass had been working the rackets for years, and he used some of his connections, which led them to Carlton Williams, alias Cody Williams. Williams had been arrested on January 19th, along with 13 other people, including three women, for an enormous kidnapping, robbery, and murder plot. The story hit the Washington Post on January 21st, the same day as the car barn murders. Here's what the article said. Throughout last night and yesterday's early morning hours, members of the new police pickup squad, armed with rumored reports of the widespread plot, descended on pool rooms, rooming houses, and other known underworld haunts to round up nearly a score of suspected gangsters. With confiscated evidence of planned violence, officials finally singled out four men as the suspected ringleaders. In their possession were weapons and implements used to aid in crimes from safe cracking to kidnapping. These suspects are held incommunicado. They were arrested at a downtown restaurant. Lying beside one of the men seated at a table was a leather bag that contained four revolvers, a large roll of adhesive tape, sheets of sandpaper, a pair of cloth gloves, an assortment of bullets, and several keys. Inspector Frank Burke, detective chief, described the four men as dangerous and up to no good. Cody Williams and the others were planning to kidnap and kill a well-known D.C. area gambling kingpin and take over the district. The kingpin's name was conveniently left out of the Washington Post article which was something I found to be habitual as I continued my research. Several of the suspects were released with their promise to get out of town, but Cody Williams was held and questioned about some of his cohorts from Washington and Baltimore. Detective Brass had arrested one of Cody Williams' friends years prior on a bank robbery charge and found out that he'd been staying at Cody Williams' house, supposedly along with another notorious gangster named Tony Cugino, a.k.a. Tony the Stinger. That name, Tony the Stinger, was synonymous with carnage. He had quite the resume and was wanted in three states for killing seven people, including a Philadelphia police officer and a New York City detective. He had eluded police for two years and was still on the run. Hearing this information from Cody Williams, Volton and Brass put Tony the Stinger on top of their list, even though nobody thought that the Carbarn case was the work of an organized gang. Tony Cugino, alias Tony the Stinger, grew up in Brooklyn and started out with the Augie gang when he was a teenager, along with other thugs named Guinea-Faced Louie, Slats Slatco, and Blink. 
They were into gambling, bootlegging, and small-time heists. But Tony the Stinger had bigger plans. Things quickly got out of hand. The Augie gang didn't want the heat brought down by Tony the Stinger because he was way too violent. He took delight in torturing his victims by slitting their tongues, pulling out their fingernails, and burning people over and over again with his cigarette. The Augie gang kicked him to the curb, and Stinger went up to Detroit and joined the Purple Gang, which was one of the most violent criminal gangs in history. They were so violent, in fact, they had a spoken understanding with Al Capone of Chicago because Capone wanted to avoid the massive bloodshed that would occur if he tried to take over the Detroit rackets. After a short while, Tony the Stinger's raging temper and brutality got him ousted from the Purple Gang. He killed his fellow gang members and women with impunity, anyone who he even remotely suspected of being unfaithful. He was a psychopath of the highest order. After leaving Detroit, he moved to Chicago and was briefly a part of Al Capone's crime family, but the boss quickly realized that Stinger was unmanageable, brutal, and bloodthirsty, not the type to keep a tight lid on things. Capone told Stinger to get the hell out of Dodge. Surprisingly, Tony the Stinger heeded that advice, and he moved to Philadelphia. In Philly, he hooked up with Robert Mayus and Walter Legenza and became the de facto leader of the Tri-State Gang. Walter Legenza's psychopathic behavior gave Tony the Stingers a run for his money. They were vicious. The Tri-State Gang committed a series of robberies and murders across Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Detectives Volton and Brass wanted to get to Tony the Stinger after they got the intel from Cody Williams. If Stinger had been in D.C. during the time of Mitchell's and Smith's murders, they could credit themselves with not only solving their own case, but with getting a multi-state mass murderer off the streets. Finding Tony the Stinger Cugino's hideout was the first step. To give an idea about the kind of information that the detectives from D.C. and Montgomery County had to work with when they went on the hunt for Tony the Stinger, this is an unsigned letter from a confidential informant from the case file. Quote, Tony Cugino accompanied Tony Lazone at the Hotel La Tosca, 8th and Fitzwater. This connection made through guinea-faced Louie, who lives on Woodlawn Avenue and has a telephone and a hat store. Also a fellow named Blink, who lives in the 3200 block of Wharton Street. Tony Burns on Mulberry Street runs a pool room, or at least part of a pool room on the first floor, with phone calls received from D.C. Slats Slatko, a Philadelphia gangster wanted for murder, is living on 72nd Street, but his exact address is unknown. In Washington, D.C., the angle is Ernie Mills, who runs a crap game and has a hangout for numbers men. The detectives would have better luck at finding a specific flea on a camel's ass than finding those men in downtown Philadelphia. There were tens of thousands of gambling, prostitution, and bootlegging places hidden all over Philly. Forget it. Ernie Mills, the D.C. guy who ran the crap game, like everyone else, he used an alias, so that went nowhere. Sergeant Robert Barrett, 
of the D.C. Metropolitan Police tossed his hat in the ring with confidential information he received from an informant that Tony the Stinger had been in D.C. recently with a man named Bill Cleary. The informant said both of them were currently up in Baltimore. Sergeant Stuart Deal, from Baltimore, piped in and said that he had an old informant of his own up in Philadelphia that could definitely tell him the current location of Tony the Stinger Cugino. Everybody wanted in when they heard that Tony the Stinger was on the board as a potential suspect. They got off on a tangent, but the possibility of bringing down Stinger was too promising to pass up. If they could arrest him, it would mean commendations and advancement up the ranks for all of them. So they took another road trip, this time to the city of brotherly love. Volton and Brass met with Philadelphia Police Captain James Malone, and they explained the details of the car barn case. Captain Malone said it sure sounded like the work of Tony Cugino, and he did have relatives in D.C. and Baltimore. While they were in Philly, Volton and Brass discovered that Bill Cleary had been arrested and was currently being questioned. Cleary was the associate who had been in D.C. with Stinger, according to Sergeant Robert Barrett's information. Sergeant Stuart Deal headed off on his own to find his informant and see if he could ascertain Stinger's current hideout. While Deal pounded the streets, Volton and Brass went to the 36th Precinct to interview Bill Cleary. Cleary readily admitted to knowing Tony the Stinger and said they had been in D.C. maybe in January, maybe in November. He wouldn't give exact dates, who they met, or where they stayed. Cleary toyed with the detectives. He knew the game too well. He stopped short of admitting anything useful, making it impossible to place Cleary or Stinger in D.C. at the time of the car barn murders. But the detectives had an ace up their sleeve, or so they thought. They brought a witness with them. The witness had positively identified Bill Cleary from a photo spread as the suspect in another robbery back in the district. They wanted Cleary extradited back to DC, which would be one hell of a feather in their caps. Maybe once they got him back in familiar territory, in their own interrogation room, they could break him and get Tony the Stinger's location. But there was a problem. Once the witness was face-to-face with Bill Cleary, his memory suddenly got muddy. Now he couldn't be sure that Cleary was the man who committed the robbery. The witness was scared out of his wits, and he backed off the ID when he realized that Bill Cleary now had a positive ID on him. The witness got a free trip to Philly out of it, and he was put on the train back to D.C., Now with the lack of direct eyewitness identification on the D.C. robbery and with no direct or forensic evidence in Philadelphia to hold him, Bill Cleary was released from custody. Meanwhile, Sergeant Stuart Deal found his informant and told Volton and Brass that he had information to provide about Tony the Stinger's whereabouts. They met with a detective from the Philadelphia Racket Squad who said that Sergeant Deal's informant was completely unreliable and would parrot whatever the police wanted to know directly into Tony the Stinger's ear and tip him off, which is likely exactly what happened when Deal met with the informant and said that D.C. and Baltimore investigators were hot on his trail. The Philadelphia detectives had their own informants and were working the angles on Tony the Stinger's movements on their own. 
they didn't need Washington, D.C. and podunk Montgomery County detectives meddling in on their business, especially when they had a double homicide that was getting colder by the day with no solid ties to anywhere but Maryland and D.C. Before they called it quits and headed home, they made one more attempt to get information on the location of Tony the Stinger Cogino. They met with a Philadelphia patrol officer who said he'd known Stinger since they were kids back in Brooklyn. He said that Stinger's wife had been living at 9th and McKee, but that was a while ago. The last he heard, Stinger and his wife had been staying at the Colonial Tea House in Prince George's County, Maryland, and he was likely responsible for the mass shooting that happened there back in 1931. 1931? This information was obviously really outdated. The Colonial Tea House shooting happened around Thanksgiving, 1931. Fourteen people were lined up on a kitchen wall and robbed. Six people were shot and one died. The Tea House was a well-known gambling and prostitution den on the outskirts of the district in Bladensburg, Maryland. It was run by a former taxi driver from Baltimore who now worked for one of the Philly mobs. A rival gang wanted dibs and the profits because the tea house was doing mighty good business as a white slave operation that rotated women from New York, Philly, and other East Coast cities. The rival mob busted in and shot everyone who didn't move out of the way in time, including three of the women. It was thought that Tony the Stinger Cugino was the mastermind behind the takeover, but nobody, including the victims, ever talk to the police. Before Volton, Brass, and Deal hit the road back to D.C., they took the bullets and casings from the car barn murders to the Philadelphia Forensic Lab and asked that if any matches were found to a gun in Philly, that they be contacted as soon as possible. They headed back to the district, crestfallen, with nothing to show for their efforts except a long list of overtime requests. When Detective Volton got back to his office, he found a stack of messages with leads. Some of them were weeks old and listed names that had already been interviewed and cleared, but there were a few new names that needed to be followed up. Two names that got his attention were Arthur Waugh and Luke Johnson. Somebody had called in and said that Arthur and Luke had been out all night on January 20th. They lived just two miles north of the car barn office in Kensington. It was all hearsay, but since Arthur Waugh and Luke Johnson were not strangers to the Montgomery County Police, they brought them in for questioning. Luke Johnson was interviewed on March 10th. He lived on Jones Mill Road, which was a short distance from the murder scene and less than a mile from the Connecticut Avenue Bridge over Rock Creek. He'd been living there for about a month after a fire had destroyed his previous place, his wife and his kids had left him and went to go live with her mother. Luke was 44 years old, mostly out of work, and he was staying in a ratty cottage in the woods with holes in the floor big enough to toss a cat through. Luke had a rough life after serving as an Army infantryman during World War I. The Depression had made things especially difficult to find honest work, and with a wife and kids to support, well, at least until recently, he settled for part-time manual labor for the Public Works Administration three days a week on new roads and pipelines being installed downtown. Luke Johnson barely made enough to keep food on the table and coal in the stove. 
During Luke's interview, the focus wasn't on him, but rather on Arthur Waugh. Arthur was his nephew by marriage, and he lived at Luke's cottage most days of the week. Luke said that Arthur carried a gun, and when asked what type, Luke said it was a rifle that Arthur took as payment for helping a friend move. He said that Arthur might have a handgun that he didn't know about, but he didn't allow guns in his cottage. The detectives focused on the night of January 20th to 21st, prodding Luke's memory of both his and Arthur Waugh's whereabouts. Luke said he was at the cottage all night long because he had to be up early Monday morning to fix some wicker chairs at his mother's house. They asked about Arthur and specifically if Luke had seen him at all that night. Are you sure that Arthur Waugh did not stay at your cottage on Sunday night the 20th? I'm almost positive that he didn't stay there on Sunday night. We only had one bed and I slept in that myself and he sat in a chair by the fire. I told him when he came there that I had no place for him to sleep and he said he'd sit by the fire and keep it going. Luke said that he did see Arthur on the morning of January 21st at around nine o'clock. Volton asked him if Arthur mentioned anything to him about the murders at that time and Luke said no, they didn't discuss it until later on that night. The detectives pressed Luke on this since a double murder in Montgomery County that happened right down the road from his cottage seemed like a topic that wouldn't be that readily dismissed. Luke said that on Monday morning, he and Arthur just passed by each other in the front yard and he was in a hurry to get to his mother's house. Later that night, when they did talk about it, Luke said that Arthur seemed shocked to hear about it. The word shocked piqued Volton's attention, and he interrupted for clarification. Well, I'd say he was by the way he spoke. He seemed surprised when he heard it. It would have been a surprise to anyone when they first heard it. I remember I said to him that it was coming to the point where it was dangerous for a man to even stay in the house if he had any money, and he said that if anyone had to know if he had any money before holding him up, that he'd be safe. That was Luke's awkward way of saying they were both broke. Detective Volton asked Luke how he felt when he first heard the news. I was very much disturbed and sorry. Maybe I'm not expressing myself right. Maybe I don't know exactly what you mean by shocked. I haven't got as much education as you detectives. Volton followed up and got to the point. He asked Luke if he thought Arthur Wall was capable of committing the murders. I think he'd do anything he thought he could get by with. If he's drinking, I don't think he'd hesitate to snatch an automobile or something of that sort. Volton asked again, Do you think he'd go in on a holdup of this nature? No, sir, I don't. Volton and Brass pressed Luke numerous times on his view of the murders and what he thought happened. He said he didn't know, but he would provide any information he had in order to help. Luke Johnson's interview was four and a half single-space typed pages, one of the longest in the entire case file. Volton and Brass were nearly two months into the investigation, and they were getting desperate. They had arrested and interviewed dozens of potential suspects, only to come up empty. Luke Johnson's information didn't sway. His answers were lengthy, but seemed to be honest and stayed the same throughout the interview. It didn't seem like Luke would be considered as a suspect, but they still had to interview Arthur Waugh and see if his story aligned with Luke Johnson's. Arthur Waugh was interviewed the next day, on March 11th. 
From the notes, it's pretty obvious that Arthur had ants in his pants, and he was extremely nervous to be talking to the detectives. He was 29 years old, out of work, and desperate. He had been couch hopping from Luke Johnson's cottage to his brother's houses. They all lived within a couple of blocks of one another. Arthur seemed like the type to quickly wear out his welcome at one place, then beg to stay the night at another. He was a drinker and would frequently stay out all night in D.C., but nobody seemed to know what he was up to when he went on a bender. His answers to the detectives veered all over the place from one subject to another. It was a virtuoso of verbal vomit. Chief Garrett joined Volton and Brass for Arthur's interview. At first, they treated him with kid gloves, just trying to get his work history and where he was living. Arthur pinged from one subject to another. At one point, he went completely off topic and talked about Luke Johnson's trip to get milk for his children. He was all over the place, and the detectives did their best to pin Arthur down as to his whereabouts on Sunday night, January 20th, to the morning of Monday the 21st, but he never gave a straight answer. He said he was at drill at the armory, but that was on Tuesday. He said he never left Luke's house, but couldn't remember exactly what days he went out. He was at his brother's house, then his other brother's house, then back at Luke's cottage. At one point, Arthur said, I don't remember that morning any more than I would 50 years from now. If there's anything I can do to help the police, I'd be glad to. It's a wonder I can remember anything at all. His interview was a disaster. The detectives were getting really tired of his cagey answers, and they cut to the chase on a subject that Arthur couldn't evade. They asked him about Emery Smith. Is it a fact that in at least two or three occasions at night, you've stopped and talked with Emery Smith at the car barn in Chevy Chase? Yes, I stopped at the car barn and he asked me to. He asked me to go over. He wanted to talk to me. Arthur Waugh knew Emery Smith quite well because Arthur had married Emery's first wife, Myrtle. <laughs> 